Hello, and welcome to Siren Coffee and Science, a series of conversations on hot topics in health and social care integration, brought to you by the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's episode was originally recorded as a live web event and has been lightly edited for this podcast. Okay. I am so excited today for this session. I have been looking forward to this for like a month. So just really excited. Hi, everyone. I am Megan Sandal. Welcome to the Siren Coffee and Science podcast today. For those who don't know me, I am an associate professor of pediatrics at the Boston University School of Medicine and Public Health. And I am the co-lead principal investigator with Children's Health Watch, which is a research policy network based at Boston Medical Center. Today's conversation continues to explore topics related to assistance. As a reminder, this refers to healthcare sector activities that aim to reduce social risk by providing or linking patients with relevant social services. I am delighted to have the opportunity to talk today with overall badass woman, Dr. Rhea Boyd, She's a pediatrician, public health advocate, a scholar who is the director of equity and justice for the California Children's Trust, and most recently co-developed the conversation between us, about us, a national campaign to bring information about the COVID vaccine directly to Black communities. Dr. Boyd and I will talk about how racism is embedded in the systems, processes, and analyses of social assistance interventions and explore ways we together might challenge and dismantle those systems. I am really, really excited. And I wanted to kick off the conversation today with a confession that I actually feel a fair amount of guilt and regret about how I have sometimes described social determinants of health interventions. Uh, I often will talk about housing as a vaccine, housing as a prescription for health. And Where I really worry is that it individualizes it. It makes it so that you are only talking about it in the individual context of that. And you are therefore failing to talk about the system and the policy that created that individual need, that individual context. And therefore you only think about intervening on that individual level and you don't think about the system and the policy. And so I feel like that's a failure and I own that failure and I want to fix that failure. And it reminds me of the the article you most recently wrote last year in July with co-authors on racism and how we need to do better in how we describe race as a variable and name racism in journals to address racial inequities. And so I wondered if you could just talk about, are we failing when we only talk about individual level assistance? How do we get beyond that failure? First, thank you so much for having me and for that sweet introduction. This is such an honor to be talking when I was just a young medical student trying to put together all of my ideas about social issues and health. I had the wonderful opportunity to visit the medical legal partnership at Boston Medical Center and to shadow Dr. Sandal. And so I'm so just thrilled that we could talk now again. This is an issue that I think a lot about because I, I teach about the connections between racism and health. And what I try to teach people is that 
the language that we use really, really matters because it shows first how we analyze the problem, like where does the problem live? And then how we analyze the problem shapes how we try to solve that problem. And when we focus on individuals, as you just said, we miss the systemic drivers. We miss the ways that structures and institutions contribute to who is vulnerable and who isn't. And so instead of talking about vulnerable populations, I talk about processes that make people vulnerable. And those processes could be historical processes that have granted certain folks certain access to certain rights and resources, or they can be current processes that are demonstrated through how we distribute healthcare resources right now. The COVID vaccine is one excellent example of that. So I agree. I think making a pivot from us focusing so intently on individuals, which can implicitly start to blame individuals as if they are the reason for their vulnerability and instead focusing more on systems and structures and institutions as the drivers of population level vulnerability and making people vulnerable, I think is a really critical way to understand how racism works structurally. It's such a good point around our language, right? And part of it is I intentionally used medical language, right? A vaccine, a prescription, because to an extent, I was trying to argue why healthcare, number one, should be engaged in social context. It's important to acknowledge it. But also this idea of we think of a, a medication or a vaccine as being powerful, and yet we hold social interventions to a different standard. And so that was why I chose that language. And yet there is unintentional consequences of using that language. And we have to constantly reassess what are those unintended consequences. One thing that I think is a struggle is no system thinks it's racist. Nobody wants to own that. And it's only when you start to really unpack how a system or a process or an analysis is designed, do you find that implicit or explicit bias that's baked in? So the example that I've been really perseverating on right now is because housing is such a limited resource, oftentimes people use data-driven analytics to prioritize certain populations. So for instance, in the homeless world, there's a big push towards using these analytic assessment vulnerability tools, the VAT and the VSPDAT and all these other things. But what you find though, is that when you apply those, guess who you prioritize? You prioritize white single men. And those are the ones that get to the top of the list. Those are the people that get the limited housing resource. You have functionally created a system that has baked in some level of racism. And you exclude people who are black and brown, have more diseases, or are hyper-policed and are in criminal justice systems. And that's why they don't get the housing. I feel like just the hot off the press blog that you published with co-authors this past week around medical journals and how they treat racism. Do we always have to show data to show that systems are racist? Is the standard that people assume systems are fine and then we have to actually show them how racist they are for them to change? These are really powerful questions and ideas that you put forward that I wanna tease out or unpack a bit. So first, I also have really avoided trying to medicalize social inequality. I think those are metaphors that work that work in our medical community because we understand what we're trying to say when we say things should be a vaccine and vaccines are preventative versus treatment. Um, but one of the problems when we try to medicalize social inequality is that we can come to pathologize people and 
populations and racial groups. And when we pathologize people, when we say something's wrong, this is again, what's wrong with focusing on the individuals. It's saying something is wrong with you innately and not the rest of the community and, and not the ways that the community is then has their choices and their movements and the very ways you live shaped by the structures around you. And so I also try to avoid for people who are thinking about language, I try to avoid pathologizing people because it's it's not individuals, it's not people themselves, right? Racial groups aren't innately different from each other. What happens is people are treated differently and are afforded different access to levels of resources and rights that then shapes their outcomes. So I think that's an important note for any like learners listening or any people who write, try to avoid those metaphors because like you said, they do have really powerful intended consequences. You also mentioned something about our data systems and how our data systems can sometimes unintentionally contribute to inequitable outcomes and how we distribute resources. And here I think it's important to turn to the learnings that I have garnered from Princeton sociologist Ruha Benjamin, who writes about what she calls the new gym code and the ways that our data algorithms can actually encode inequity simply because it ignores the social divisions that already exist. It ignores who might float to the top if you only look at certain factors. So then to create perhaps anti-racist interventions or anti-racist algorithms, you actually have to have an algorithm that takes into account history, that takes into account the ways that society already differentially treats groups. Another great author who writes about that is Virginia Eubank. Her book is called Automating Inequality. And she had a really great example around child welfare that as pediatricians, I think we could really relate to. She she gave an example of the child welfare algorithm in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania. And essentially the algorithm has like a pre-screen. So if a mandated reporter like pediatricians or child care providers report a child in their family, instead of it going to a human screener, it goes through this algorithm. And the algorithm only pulls data from people who are on some sort of public assistance. And what she says is that becomes a way of poverty profiling. It becomes a way of us oversampling folks who are already poor to then represent who might maltreat their kids. And that leaves out families who might not be on any source of public assistance, but might actually be maltreating their kids. And the implications of what she talks about are really widely seen. There was that paper in, I want to say 2019 or 2018 in AJPH that told us that by the time Black children turn 18, one out of every two have been referred to CPS, Child Protective Services. Like, one out of every two. How does that happen? A lot of pediatricians would say, I'm not racist. I don't over-refer or inappropriately refer certain families. But when you see that, and then you see data like Virginia Eubanks, we then have to question, well, what are the levers that help us decide who is quote unquote at risk and who is not? And how are those levers that we've decided actually set by larger historical legacy forms of racism? that determines who has things and who doesn't more broadly in society. So I think when we think about how do we unpack those systems to the last part of your question about like, how do we focus on racism? I think it begins with, we have to learn more about how racism impacts health. Not learn more because that evidence isn't out there, but that evidence also often isn't elevated and prioritized in our top institutions. And as you note, in our recent health affairs blog, 
it isn't often elevated within the most preeminent medical journals in the field. And so if it doesn't become evidence in those types of journals, then it's easier for people to askew it as not a part of our clinical practice. And so those are some changes that we know need to be made. So one of the things that I worry a lot about is we've kind of broken the term social determinants, right? Because when we talk about it now, it almost always is negative. A patient has social determinants of health. We, we don't say that about my kids and my kids have great social determinants of health. And it reminds me a little bit of what uh, Stacey Lindau talked about in her most recent siren coffee around assets. We need to not just talk about deficits. We need to talk about assets. But it does feel to me that there's a real need to unpack the term equity because people are throwing it around a lot. And I really, really think that we're going to break the term equity. I have to admit that I am really focused a lot that equity is not just an outcome. Equity is a process. And we have to talk about how do you infuse equity into each step of a process such that you are able to think about this and move it forward. And I'm concerned about it because I do feel like there are, you know, I'll use COVID vaccine as an example. People set up COVID vaccination sites where you needed a car, you needed to log onto the internet, you needed to speak English, you needed to be savvy. And then you wondered why many people didn't necessarily sign up. And I will say when we as Boston Medical Center designed our COVID vaccine outsites, we designed it where it was on public transportation. We partnered with churches. We partnered with making a telephone number and things like that, because that was how you infused equity into the process. So could we just talk about equity as a word? And how do we make sure that we're naming and challenging racist systems and making them more equitable in the process? This is I'm so glad you asked this question because I'm going to go a step further. I'm going to say equity isn't enough. So I want everyone to draw into their mind that picture we've all seen of that baseball game and the people of three different heights who are trying to look over a fence at a baseball game, right? And we usually use that image to talk about the difference between equality and equity, that if you gave everybody at differing heights the same size box, some people who are the shortest still can't see over the fence. And so the equitable picture is to give people boxes kind of according to their size or to distribute resources commiserate with need so everyone can see over the fence. One of the problems with that image, and here I quote Angela Davis, and this is what I often teach about, is that it has become so difficult for us to envision social orders or even advocacy strategies that don't rely on the fence, right? We have to have a problem with that equity picture because a fence is still in that picture, right? We started this by talking about how people are made vulnerable. Nobody, in fact, is innately short. What's wrong with that picture is some people seem of differing heights, but that is actually a process that is forced. And so a picture that I actually prefer is one by Nicholas Barcello, who's from UCLA, who wrote an academic uh, psychiatry and published this picture. And I think the artist is Aria Galili, that instead, if you center at the margins, which is one of the central tenets of critical race theory, if you center your analysis among the perspective of those most harmed, and you use that same image, you shouldn't be able to actually see the baseball game. We're not the person who's looking over the top and seeing what everyone sees. Instead, we should center ourselves from the people on the other side of the fence, which means we don't even know the resources that we're missing. So when we say to patients like, why didn't you ask for this thing, right? Why didn't you know that this is the way you get that thing? People can be so far from that thing, they don't even know it's there for them. And then on the other side of that fence, nobody's short, 
heart, there's somebody who's sitting in a hole, which is a great metaphor for divestment in their communities. And there's another person who's on their knees with their hands handcuffed behind their backs, right? There are certain communities that are ensnared so deeply in the criminal justice system that even if they wanted to apply for public housing, they're not eligible. Even if you wanted to apply for food stamps, even if you wanted to vote in some states, you cannot. And then in the setting of those people being held down, right, not innately short, but held back, other people are artificially advantaged and given that box. And only that person who's given that box can then see over the fence. And the point of that reorientation is for us to acknowledge the ways that inequity is constructed and then perpetuated. And so it is actually insufficient for us to now just try to redistribute resources commiserate with need. Instead, we have to become a system that is trying to abolish fences. And once we determine that we actually built some of those fences, that our business plans and medicine have erected some of these larger forms of inequality in society, then we know where we have to begin. But that's obviously a much harder discussion. <laughs> yeah, that is just such a masterclass description of, of where in our description of equity, are we actually perpetuating this concept where we are just filling gaps, not eliminating gaps? We are not tearing down the walls that hold people down. And I think we have to force ourselves, right? When we are talking, and I'm going to push the siren group, group on this, right? When we are talking about assistance on the individual level and not asking what were the barriers that are creating that need, I think that we are really doing a disservice. We have to push ourselves harder on this. And we have to push ourselves harder on on really making sure the words are right. I do want to give a bit of a shout out to the, the chat. There's some good stuff around how we we can't use the word vulnerable anymore. God, like I that clangs in my ear every time. And and to an extent, how we start to think about ways in which whether we talk about structurally disempowered or we talk about oppression or we talk about other things, to me, again, like. People get stuck on the word sometimes, but they don't then change their actions. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about whether or not when we are pushing ourselves to change the actions, thinking a little bit about Heather McGee's Some of Us, how do we talk about tearing down those walls that benefits everyone and not necessarily end up with this zero-sum gain, which I think sometimes happens because people are really wanting to make this a business model. And I think that to an extent in that, we are just compromising on every level of, of what we're trying to accomplish. This is getting so deep and I'm excited we're going there. So part of the zero sum game comes because we have a political economy that's rooted in racial subjugation and capitalism. And in a capitalist model, everyone can't win, right? Resources flow to the top so that capital can accumulate among a few. And that comes from extracting capital from the rest of us. And that is the basis of our economy. Some folks refer to that as racial capitalism, the idea that capitalism requires and benefits from and thus then recreates the racial hierarchies that allow only certain people to ascend to accumulate capital. Because we have that, we have to then become aware of the ways that our healthcare system becomes founded in racial capitalism, the way we actually can profit off of racial inequality and then the racial health inequities that result on the other side. We have a system that makes money if you have to come to the hospital, especially if you have to come to the ICU and stay a long time. Right now, right, we're trying to penalize hospital readmissions, but that's so 
it reflects our myopic understanding and analysis of what actually drives who's sick and then who gets better. And so I think we do have to come to focus on the way structures, and in this example, I'm using our entire political economy in this country, contribute to who's sick and who gets better, to who gets healthcare and who does not. And there are ways that in our healthcare system, we have enormous power over that. Because our healthcare system is 17% of our GDP, we are an enormous workforce. And when we don't diversify our workforce, we contribute to racial inequality. We contribute to gaps in who has resources and who doesn't, right in our own communities where most Healthcare organizations are their number one employer. When we are nonprofit organizations, when we separate out physicians into a for-profit separate entity that then contracts with hospitals that are allowed to be nonprofits, right, then the communities that live around us don't get the resources from the profits that we garner. When they don't get those resources, that's why the Sterling Cleveland Clinic can sit in the middle of neighborhoods that's impoverished. It's the reason Hopkins sits in the middle of impoverished Baltimore. And it's not just impoverished Baltimore. These are also communities that are disproportionately Black, disproportionately Latinx. That's a function of our tax status. These are things that we have to come to question and investigate. There's a great Annals of Internal Medicine piece that looked just at academic medical centers and their business practices and highlights some of these things like nonprofit status and segregation as a way to understand how we also contribute to health inequities. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I, when we start talking about racism, I end up starting to think about it on four levels. There is the individualized, internalized levels. There are then the systems levels. I put place in there as another layer up from systems because place is where we concentrate racism. It's where redlining happens. It's where ongoing economic disinvestment happens in certain neighborhoods. It's why zip code is more important to your health than genetic code and why every city in the United States has a 20 to 30 year mortality gap. And then we have policy. So at each level, at the policy, at the place, at the system, at the individual level, And I will challenge us that we should always take individual data and say, how does this indicate the system place and policy failure that has occurred? Because as you said, right, there's nothing about melanin content in skin that drives the inequities that we see. It is intentionality at those other levels. And it's where I joke a little bit. I talk more like a banker now than I do like a doctor. And the reason is, is because These systems are about investments and these systems are around where you put resources and how you do, frankly, reparative or reparation style resources worth $3 trillion. If our healthcare system is not at that table about making a difference in that, we're never going to accomplish what we need to do. I completely agree with all of that. (laughs) I'm curious, as we're getting closer to the end, where's the biggest leverage tool healthcare can do? Because We are focused a lot right now on individual level assistance and screening, what is the right screening tool. We're putting ICD-10 codes together. We're doing all these other pieces. And I really don't want to discount that work. And yet, I believe if there is not an and that follows that, honestly, we are major employers like you were talking about. How do we change our employment practices to be more equitable? How do we do policy work to get more resources to certain communities. I really focused right now on place-based initiatives. How do you do place-based initiatives where you're bringing new capital with new intentionality 
And so can you just talk to me about the and work? You are someone that does the the two-on-one work, right, in San Diego, but then you're also doing the structural stuff. So like, how do you start to, to meld those worlds? So glad you raised this. I have been critical of screening and the ways that we gather data about patients to serve their needs. One of the projects that we're doing at 2-on-1 through a grant through RWJ that we're really fortunate to participate in is trying to rethink that whole process. So for folks who don't know 2-on-1, they're a part of a national organization that's run regionally, often paired or operated through United Ways. But the one that I work with in San Diego is its own independent nonprofit. And so 2-on-1 is a number you can call from anywhere and then get routed to a navigator who helps you apply for food stamps or sign up for housing or navigate any of your social needs. There we are asking, what does it mean when people have to give us their personal information for us to then give you a service? And does that somehow erode the fact that everyone is deserving of the resources that we're trying to give, right? We are giving people housing opportunities, like we're giving people food, just basic, basic vital services that everyone should have a right to, especially in a society that's so wealthy and can afford it like ours. And so we are creating this framework to help organizations understand where they are in the continuum of exploiting and extracting from the clients that we serve for our own benefit, which data collection in many ways is for our benefit. And instead, right now we're calling it a more liberatory model where we're actually trying to give that data back to the community, have the community set the data that two-on-one gathers about them so that it's data that the community uses to surveil the system. We use data right now to look intently at people. But what that does is it focuses on individuals as if they're the problem. And what we really need is to liberate data about how we're performing, how we're distributing resources, how people feel and how their experience of their care was, right? We should know all of those things. And the community should know that in real time, the same way we want to know in real time their needs so that they can advocate back to us to make changes. And so we're trying to shift that power dynamic and shift that relationship so it's our data relationship to communities isn't extractive so that you don't have to tell us anything personal for you to get food. I think we're seeing the same things, honestly, around the COVID vaccines right now, that people should not have to say whether you have health insurance or not, because you don't need health insurance to get the COVID vaccine. And although we want to know that data about who gets it, it's not more important than people actually getting the vaccine. Particularly for families who are undocumented, we should not be asking any questions at any COVID vaccine site about people's immigration status. And so sometimes I think we have to balance whether we really need to know that or whether that serves us more than it serves our patients. And then in terms of the business practices, I think we have to laser focus on, I think segregation is absolutely number one, that we have a segregated workforce, which is something I've written on in The Lancet that we should address because it also shapes, as we talked about earlier, broader economic inequality across racial lines in our country. And then we also have to think about the ways that we then contribute to segregation as a workforce. Where do doctors live? Where do you send your children to school? Do you support your local public school? Do you enroll your kids and join a lottery? Like here where I live in our school district, you join a lottery and you might get a great school or you might not get a great school, but having having a wealth of our public actually send their kids to public schools increases the resources in those schools for everybody. So I think we also have to think about the ways that we contribute to forms of inequality because of the social status and class that we are afforded as a part of this 
profession. Um, and if people are looking for individual solutions, I think you could start in your own home with where you live, with where you send your kids to school and with how you vote. And if we're not doing those things in the interest of the populations that we want to serve and that we want to address, that also is a huge reflection of what we are doing and really what we're not. Oh, Ria, I could talk to you all day. And I feel like in a lot of ways, you have given me and I hope everyone that's listening a lot to think about because I think that as we think professionally and personally about how we can be anti-racist, I challenge us to always feel like we can do more. And I think that that you have given a lot, especially as we think about enablers, but really barrier removal and this idea that what are we using the data for? I'm very sad to say that that's all that we have time for today. I want to express amazing gratitude to Dr. Rhea Boyd for her insights. And thank you all for our listeners for joining today. The next Coffee and Science webinar is on May 7th and will feature Reggie Williams II and Dr. Matt Pantel, who will discuss lessons learned about addressing social isolation and loneliness in places around the world. Be well, and thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Siren Coffee and Science Series, a project of the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at UCSF. Raven Forest Communications does our editing and sound design. Susan Shepard designed our cover art, and Aurélien Jukla composed our music. Laura Gottlieb, Dylan Gonzalez, and Yuri Cartier, that's me, produce the podcast and the live event series. Join us for our next live event by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.